Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day and with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from uh, any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius, of an Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. That story is pretty powerful in and of itself, wouldn't you agree? That, that one stands alone. Can't you just picture it? This Areopagus, this, this hillside that well, sort of reminds me of, of like an old cemetery in this ancient city, you know, an old city cemetery uh, where there's lots of trees and ponds and walkways and paths and, and lots of flowers and 
monuments everywhere. That's what I picture when I think about this scene. But there's something else I picture, and I'd like you to just join me in a little sanctified imagination. I'm really in love with that phrase. I'll probably get a new one eventually, but join me in this imagination exercise. Imagine you're driving down a big four-lane road in an urban area, and there's a stoplight every quarter of a mile, and there's restaurants and home improvement centers and malls and pet stores, bars, liquor stores, car dealerships, uh, hamburger joints. See, what else would you see if you were driving down Green Valley Road in Evansville, let's say. You'd see all these things on either side of the road and then right along the way, almost missing it because of its obscurity, there's this little sort of green patch with, with shrubbery and trees that should have been trimmed years ago and right in the middle of it is an old little A-frame building with a little cross on top of it and an old metal sign with those little metal letters that you put up on it and it catches your eye for just a second and then you miss it because it's already gone by and now more stoplights, more traffic, more access roads, more home improvement centers, more outdoor shops. But you keep wondering about that little building and so finally with great effort you find a way to turn around and go back to it and eventually cross the busy traffic into the little narrow entryway and you pull up to that sign and on the sign it says dedicated to an unknown God. Can you picture that? Can you picture this scene for a minute because when I think of the Areopagus in one sense, I have this picture of it the way it must have looked for Paul. And then I have, in another sense, this picture of our modern version of the same thing. A place where we go to give alms and offerings in order to satisfy our flesh. Let me tell you the background story on the Areopagus. You know, Athens is a pretty old city. You probably knew that. And Athens, about 600 years before this story, had a terrible plague and a number of other problems that were really putting them uh, at dis-ease and creating a great deal of discomfort for the people. And they went to this place called the Areopagus where they had already erected certain altars to certain gods as they'd been directed by their religious leaders. And, and, and in order to appease these gods and try to bring an end to their suffering, they took a flock of sheep there. This is a true story. They took a flock of sheep up to the Areopagus and they let the sheep wander wherever they would. And wherever the sheep laid down, if it be near one of the existing altars, they would put that sheep on the altar and sacrifice it to that god. And if one of the sheep ended up laying somewhere where there were no religious monuments or altars of any kind, they would create one, sacrifice the sheep, and offer it to an unknown god. And this is literally how they arrived at the place where the Apostle Paul was on this particular occasion we just read about. Walking amongst the monuments and the trees and the landscaping were all these... Epicureans and Stoics and other philosophers spent their days sitting around talking about new things. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like a lot of gossip? Doesn't that sound like a really productive way to spend your days? Oh, I'm going to go out to the Areopagus and talk about new things. Okay? Gathered around the various gods, 
thinking again about that busy road where we take our boredom, where we take our anxiety, where we take our wants and our needs, the things that satisfy the flesh. And we like hanging around in some of those places like the altar to the Starbucks image where we can talk with people like ourselves and sing hymns where they even sell you the CDs next to the coffee. Maybe we have a brand affinity of car we like and they've just come out with a new model. We like going down there to hang out with people who like the same brand we do. Maybe we go out to the Areopagus called Urban Market Place and we drown our sorrows, numb ourselves to our pain and our worries and anxieties. Maybe, maybe we go to get the things that we feel that will enrich our lives when we go home so that we might have something of a house or yard or property within that puts us on equal terms with our betters. And on and on it goes, and it really is the same thing that Paul is describing here. Epicureans are an interesting bunch. This is why I decided to expand the reading, because I want to make sure that you heard about the Epicureans. You may have heard this phrase used in popular culture because it's a way that cooking shows, for example, describe the, uh, the satisfaction of the taste buds. Epicureans were people who didn't believe that God could be known if there was a God. And therefore, it doesn't really make any sense to waste a great deal of energy trying to win God's approval or to worry about whether God's even watching. They were the people that taught us to live for the flesh because you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And so Epicureans... Not unlike hedonists, for example, were all about indulging the flesh, all about making themselves happy. Stoics, on the other hand, had the same attitude about God, but their response was to say it's all fatalistic. It's not worth getting all that excited about. And so they both listened to Paul and they thought, what is this guy babbling about anyway? What is this guy babbling about? He's talking about some foreign god we've never heard of. And Paul, being the astute and wise and worldly communicator that he was, said, yeah, you're right. In fact, I might just be talking about that unnamed god. How is it that in our day there is still the same unnamed god, the one that everybody thinks they know, but nobody really knows? How is it that church people and Christian people across the world live like Epicureans and Stoics and every other kind of, of philosophy there is from human minds and yet don't know the God they claim to worship? How does that happen? 
If the Apostle Paul came here today to Jasper, Indiana, drove through our streets, walked by our homes, came to our church, would he start by saying, I perceive that in every way you're religious people because I see all the things you worship. Your boat, your car, your yard, your house, your church building, the music, the preaching, I see all the things you worship, but I see amongst you an unknown God. Now here's where this really gets interesting, because Paul, he is good, and he's never been more on it than he is in this one right here, in my opinion. Because here's what Paul says, it's a phrase that I love, and I use it all the time, and it's part of my personal prayer. He says, we have a saying, Christians, that it is in him we live and move and have our being. And you have a saying that we are all children of God. And here I am to tell you that you are right, but you don't even know how right you could be. Because in fact, it is in this unknown God that you live and move and have your being. Let me tell you what that means to me. In him we live and move and have our being. In the story of creation in Genesis, God puts together the world as we understand it and creates the man. And then God is pleased with all that God has done and God rests. And then the next day, day eight, he takes from the man, from his side, the woman. Now, please set aside any sexist thoughts you might be having right now or assumptions about my language. Simply hear that what God did was create a man that he intended to be the companion for someone. And if you think about everything God created up to day six, everybody had a partner, every animal had a counterpart. Every living thing, as we know from our natural science studies in grade school and high school, has a partnership with some other living thing. Plants, animals, all living things. But Adam, at the completion of creation, is alone, apart from his relationship with God. And what we understand as we read through the entire Bible, all the way through the epistles of St. Paul, we come to the place where we begin to realize that God created Adam, small a, not a proper name, but a word that describes the human, in order to make a perfect companion for his son, co-creator of all things. And then he says, but it's not good for this one to be alone. And so he takes from within the man, the Adam, the one we call Eve, the woman, flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone. Again, try not to think in terms of, of human sexuality as much as the, the created order. And at this point, recognized that what God intended was that everything about this second person came from within the first. Now they sinned. In fact, it was the woman drawn from the man who sinned first, and it was the man who chose to sin with her in order that he might go through the punishment with her. Again, bearing 
upon himself, her sin, taking it upon himself. Now you roll the clock forward to the one that Jesus, Jesus Christ, the one that the Apostle Paul calls the new Adam. And it is this one, the Son of God, who, having taken upon himself our sin, died on the cross and to verify that he had, in fact, completed his death. A spear was pierced through his side, pierced his side in the ribs, and it is said then that his bride was birthed, the church. In other words, his deed brought his bride from his side. And so what the first Adam could not do, the second Adam did, and it is in him we live and move and have our being. We are literally, as the body of Christ, drawn from his side in the same way that the first bride was drawn from the first Adam. That's the message we're supposed to take away, you see. And so when Paul says it is in him we live and move and have our being, what he is saying quite plainly is that it's exclusive. Now, I've got to be honest with you, in church, especially denominational, or institutional, organized religion, we have a tendency to avoid any sense of exclusivity, but I've got to be truthful. There's no way to get around it at this point. There's only one way that you can be in him and therefore in him live and move and have your being. And that is to accept how his sacrifice gives you new birth from him. You're sons and daughters of Eve until you're born again. Jesus said that when he told Nicodemus. You have to be born again. First you're born of the flesh, but then you have to be born of the Spirit. And the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And so the message Jesus is saying is that there's an exclusive, unique way to become one with the Father and one with Christ the Son. And it is through the miraculous Holy Spirit new birth where you are literally put to sleep like Adam was and drawn from within Christ's side, so to speak. And in this way, you are in him, having your own being. You are no longer you, but you are him and you are part of him. Now, being is a phrase that we use. It's very familiar to these Greek philosophers. They would have understood exactly what it was driving at there. It's the same phrase that we use to say, like the id ego, for example. It's that sense of yourself. It's that perception of yourself. That self-knowledge that, that is where you have this strange feeling that you're two people sometimes, right? Where you, we're talking to yourself, and, and yet you are yourself. That, that's what the being is. The being is what we would call a soul. It's that part of you that transcends your flesh. Isn't that amazing? That transcended part of you that is not dedicated to the flesh, but dedicated to, to what? Well, if you've been born again, then it's dedicated to the one in whom you live and move and have your being. 
This is what the Apostle Paul wants to, uh, to, to compare and contrast on this Areopagus. He wants to say all of these things of the flesh are meaningless. They're just false gods that give you a false sense of hope and a false sense of security and, and for a moment maybe numbs your pain and takes away your, your, distracts you from your anxieties and everything. But in the end, it does nothing to better your life. There's no app for that. In him we live and move and have our being. It is an exclusive relationship. What Paul said to the Greeks was is that this is the way it really is and you guys know instinctively that it should be that way because you have this tendency to say that all roads lead to heaven and that all are children of God, but that's not really true. It's not really true. The apostle made it clear to us that in order to have that sense of oneness with your creator, to live and move in him, it is done through the person of Jesus Christ. It is through his death and resurrection that you have a similar death and resurrection where you die to the flesh and arise having been drawn from his side just as he was drawn from the tomb. A new eternal being. This is what it means to me to live in him and move and breathe and have my being. I am no longer myself, but I am Christ in me. In him I live and move and have my being. What would that be like for you? How would that make your life different? Has that ever really occurred to you? These people that stood around on the Areopagus were talking and talking and talking and seeking enlightenment and it never came. And then the light was standing in their midst and the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul and some saw it, others rejected it, and some were just blind. You can shine a light right in a blind person's face and it won't make any difference. Where are you today? Do you understand that in order to have this eternal being in him and to have him guide your living and your moving. You have to repent. That's the first thing you have to do. That is exactly what Paul says in the passage you just read. Repent. Repent of what? What is repentance? Well, repentance is really simply just deciding that you've been going the wrong way and you need to turn and go in a new direction. That's what repentance is. I had somebody ask me this week in the form of a message if, if the statement they'd heard was true that Methodist pastors aren't allowed to preach repentance. And I thought, well, first of all, I'm not very much of a Methodist pastor, if that's what you want to call me, but I could tell you that this pastor preaches repentance. And I try to preach it every single week. It's a decision you have to make to put your flesh and yourself aside so that you can make room for him in you. 
And then what you find is that he draws you into him and it is in him you live and move and have your being. It starts with the decision to stop moving the direction you've been moving and go in a new direction. That's repentance. To say to God, you know, I've been wrong. I've been worshiping at all these altars even though there is someone who desperately wants to be known who desperately wants to have a relationship with me that will last for eternity, who wants me to be his child and the perfect companion to his son. And there's nothing unknowable about him. And so he wants you to repent so that you can see what you had once been blind to, to acknowledge that you're not as smart as you think you are. And it isn't your goodness that gets you into God's grace. It is God's grace that makes you good. Once you get to this point, then you begin to realize that you want him to guide every aspect of your life, that you might live and move in his being that his heart and mind would be in sync with your heart and mind so that you are one with him just as he is one with the Father. Begins with repentance and it continues for all eternity with obedient service. And not the kind of service that feels like slavery or drudgery, but simply a commitment to love him unconditionally as your leader, as your king. So here's the good news. All it takes is a prayer. Somebody else asked me why I never do altar calls, and I'll tell you the honest truth. I don't do altar calls as a rule because, well, I've seen them misused. You've heard me joke about this in the past, about how the little Baptist girls that got this Catholic kid from Pittsburgh to go to the altar with them, and then they told me the next day I could go out with them. I had no idea what was going on. We went to the altar where I went to church, too. Every week we'd go up to the rail and kneel and take communion. I had no idea that this was anything else. And so it was wasted on me. And it's wasted many times in churches by people who are not doing what it's really meant to be. A commitment to repentance and the leadership of Christ in your life. So I'm not going to ask you to do anything except make that decision. If you've never made it, if you're watching online, make that decision. If you're here, make that decision. If you've made that decision, then do the next part, which is to actually let him lead your life so that in him you live and move and have your being. And if you've done that, then pray earnestly that others might do the same even today. As I close with the prayer for that purpose, I ask you to just make that decision, and if you want to tell me about it, I'd love to know. But trust me, there's only one person that needs to hear that authentic commitment, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll know about it, and the other believers will know about it, because you will be a member of our family, and it'll be hard to resist the fellowship of the believers.
the great cloud of witnesses that we become. Let us pray. Almighty God, I thank you for your word. I ask that you burn it now into our hearts in a way that transforms our nature. For everyone who says yes to you today, I pray glory to you as all heaven rejoices. I pray, Lord, that everyone who is ready, repent and choose a new way, an eternal way. I pray that everyone who earnestly desires to have their lives given over to you might live in you and move in you and have their being in you. Lord, for everyone who repented a long time ago but stopped visiting you and knowing you in a personal way might return to you today. And for those of us who know you, I pray, Lord, greater strength, greater wisdom, louder voices, more evidence, and for your namesake and all for your glory, we pray. Amen.